0: title drop oh he said the thing, he said, ah, the thing. He, sa- <laughs> he said the thing he said the thing he said the
1: thing he said the thing cinematic fantastic
0: Atul Varada Nikto. I'll
1: show you who I am and what I am by a werewolf and leaves becomes a werewolf himself
0: open the pod par- bay doors pal.
1: I'm sorry Dave I'm afraid I can't do that
0: Hello, and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford.
1: And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes as we watch and review sci fi
0: and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Good evening, listeners. Well, it's evening where we are. This is the thirteenth episode of Cinematic Fantastic. Welcome, everybody. William, how you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I'm doing good too. I uh, we have a a very interesting movie for you tonight. Uh, I say tonight. Wow, we have a very interesting. Wait, somebody could be listening to this at two o'clock in the morning or ten o'clock. Okay, I'm going to say that over again. All right, here we go. I'm going to start it over again. Good
1: morning, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Yeah,
0: I think we get it. Good good day or night to you all, listeners.
1: Morning, evening, afternoon, (laughs) birth or death,
0: birthday
1: or death day.
0: I think they get it. So today's episode is the most dangerous game and no... We're not talking about Elden Ring. It's not that dangerous. <laughs> it's only dangerous to your sanity if you're trying to beat it, uh, because supposedly it's very difficult. Anyway, no. This is the most dangerous game, as in the thing you hunt, as in deer or or turkeys or man. Uh, that's the whole point of the of the title. Is 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 spoiler alert. The most dangerous game, the most th- dangerous thing to hunt, is
1: man. No, it's not. The most dangerous game is a form of player sport, especially a competitive one played according to rules and decided by skill, strength, or luck. That is man.
0: Oh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's the most... That's the most... That's helpful. That's the most complex way of putting that, that anybody could put that on planet Earth. Thanks, William.
1: Alright, so... this, This movie is a very it It's a very unique case as compared to our other ones, there yeah. might be a much shorter episode for that fact, but this is um I think this is one of the first uh that we're covering that are based off of a short story so this I believe that this by being a short story it, it really it it really aids this movie it's the the scripting plays it perfectly, and like the movie is just. It fits the short story role. A lot
0: of times with a short story, it's it's something that you can read in one sitting.
1: I would say that this is a movie that you can watch yeah, in one sitting. It's an and hour most long. movies are yeah. things that you can watch in one sitting, right? Except for Seven Samurai and Lord of the Rings Extended Edition, right? Compilation of obviously, but
0: or the ba- uh, the Batman that came out uh, this year of twenty twenty two. Um, that was like, that's like, that's like two hours and 40 or 50 minutes long. So, uh, but what I can say about this movie is that it moves at a very generous pace. I mean, it's like, if you think something, you know, is not going to happen and it's going to be real slow and no, it really, it really hums, it moves.
1: And it it, it really fits like the, mo- it's perfect. It's a perfect for a movie of this like length and size and whatever and scope it's yeah i just think perfect. i think
0: it's a perfect st- i think it's a perfect all-around story it gets what it wants
1: to get done um it keeps you engaged you go on a cool adventure and then you get right back off it's not as thoughtful as our other ones but that's definitely okay as we talked about earlier there are definitely going to be movies that we cover that are less thoughtful than our previous ones, that might be you know more snappy, more adventurous, you know more well, now wait, sci-fi. Now wait, I pope. would say
0: this also. Let's put it this way: there are some elements of this movie, strangely enough, that relate to at least eh, at least four of the movies we've done so far. I don't know, maybe three. And I and I can tell you what I think about that. Uh, number one, it's a guy who gets washed up on an island just like island of lost souls uh he's by himself right and so he can, he comes he runs afoul of a villain spoiler alert uh who has uh their own
1: uh plot for him and it also takes place on a jungle so yes. basically we're repeating <laughs> This is kind of stale. It's like, please don't make me do another again. Plus. We're going to be stuck (laughs) on an island forever. We're going to be marooned so hard that we're crimson red. Oh, no. Here's the other thing is
0: I I have some more parallels for you, uh, but it relates also to Tarzan, which is the interplay between who is savage and who is civilized, who is the hunter and who is hunted, who is the animal,
1: who's the game, who
0: is the animal, but who's the man you know who's the man hey william you the man so <laughs> <laughs> oh that was bad okay i'm sorry i just said who's the man and i was like yeah who's the man yeah that's right no uh it the, the you know the the interplay between beast and man and who is what and that that
1: that's island of lost souls that's also a bit of tarzan as well bi- a bit of tarzan the ape man as well and maybe even technically frankenstein as well
0: you know the case could be made the case could be made for that i i would not i would not say no to that we're going to see a lot of you know animals and and jungles throughout you know because because jungles are so mysterious right and
1: you know and and you, you don't know what you're wet, getting into there's just a place that you you have to cut through. It's like a wild land. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's it's also very primeval, if you want to look at the lost world there.
1: Like, is there a movie that we've covered that's an adventure movie and does not take place on a jungle or an island? No.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Even when we do Jur- Jurassic Park, that's going to be on an island with the jungles on it. <laughs> look, it, it's, it's very iconic. I will say this, the plot for this movie is very iconic. I'm going to I'm going to go over the plot later in the episode, but William, do you have a synopsis, a very quick little thumbnail you can think of
1: right now? Um You want to try to sum it up? Sure. So th- this is a really simple sum up. So basically, a guy gets marooned on an island. Yes, we've seen that before. Right. And, <laughs> right. Yet again, a man gets marooned on an island. He gets shipwrecked. And then he floats onto an island, though he doesn't get rescued at all. Though, but still, he he does kind of get rescued, kind of by Zoff. Yeah. But then he meets a villain on this island, who then he he seems nice, and then it he's discovered to be evil, and then he challenges to him a game of outdoor chess, as he calls it, where he goes and hunts him, and um. Rainsford is the name of the shipwreck guy. He has to outsmart him and outwit him by making traps, ultimately causing the demise of Count Zaroff.
0: Yes, and uh, and it basically is is you know, uh, Rainsford is a hunter, just the same way that you know that Zaroff is. Except Zaroff is tired of hunting uh, just animals. He believes that that man is the, is the greatest. Uh, goal in hunting. So, to, uh, to hunt down man. That's a good synopsis. Um, this movie... What, what year did this movie come out? Was it 32? Yep. 1932. So, we're still in the early 30s. There's still quite a few little gems, some jewels uh, to to uh, to see. Um, this... I really enjoyed this movie. What, what did you... How did you feel
1: about it? I felt like as well as fitting it perfectly the short story design i i did feel like i th- this one was pretty good i do believe so i mean we've seen some kooky ones we've seen some thoughtful ones this one it's just it's a pretty good adventure it's it just matches perfectly with the story that i've uh read there are, there are some changes but still Only name changes, as we'll talk about later.
0: So there are some interesting things about this movie and another movie that we're going to watch in about three or four episodes, three, four, five episodes, um, that is probably, if you really want to, you know, uh, we've done some iconic movies, okay? We've done Dracula, Frankenstein. Those are very iconic. But the one we're going to do towards the end of this season is so iconic, I think it changed cinema, I think forever. Uh, you can see that sh- the ripples of this big 80 foot tall rock that has been <laughs> dropped into the ocean of film, you know, the b- b- blockbusters, uh, like, like the, the movie that would have people around the, you know, line up around the block to see a movie and just their imaginations be forever altered. Um, the movie's called King Kong. Um, uh, and it, this movie is related to it.
1: In many different ways. However, this movie was... It, it, it was it was pretty popular. I mean, overall, it had very positive reception. You even got 100% Rotten Tomatoes. Um, there are not very many films that do that, but there are, are quite a lot.
0: What was the reception at the time? Because I know Rotten Tomatoes is the current modern reception. It was reception. overall
1: very positive. People liked this one quite a lot. And... It also did well at the box office as well. It it made $70,000, which that might not see. It's a lot, but if you adjust for inflation, because yeah. this world is kind of silly, just money doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> this, in 2016, at the very least, last updated, totals up to $1.2 million. That is quite... A respectable.
0: That's good for its time, but but we we have movies you know now that can make four hundred four hundred and fifty million in one weekend and be pretty good, but you know they don't have to be the greatest movie of of all time and still get four hundred fifty million in a weekend, so that's not too shabby. But again, you know the population is huge. There's a lot more theaters now. There's a lot more reasons why, but you know with, that was pretty a respectable. Uh, for its time, I would say
1: yes. But then, also you said we we're in the 1930s. and Yeah, you know, the 30s is good. Also, did you know that Technicolor was alive right now in the 1931? In fact, that there was color. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. But some people choose not to use color, especially you know like core people can choose not to have color. But color was available in this era. For instance, the, the first one that used Technicolor and sound and picture is uh, a Disney short, it's a silly symphony, it's called Flowers and Trees. Yeah. And uh, I observed that one, and I watched that one, it was pretty cool, but I didn't know it was the first Technicolor audio-visual uh, media. That's amazing. We haven't talked about color that much, apart from, you know, the silent film era, they tinted it after the fact. Right. But... Otherwise, it's like a good thing to talk about color because color was alive right now, but some people choose not to do it.
0: Yeah, but was it was it kind of like, you know, a a fad maybe or or did they not see the, you know, uh, see the benefit of of filming in in color?
1: I guess it's because the tone of the film definitely influences like if you're doing like a happy go lucky musical or like a comedy, you do Technicolor. Yeah, most musicals did Technicolor. But then there are some movies that don't. A ton of horror movies uh, are famously filmed in black and white, but um, such as these Universal ones and uh, the rest of the films we've covered also, as well. However, this one does have a colorized version that came out in uh, 2012, I think.
0: Yes, yeah, that that one is also
1: available. I think you could find it on Tubi, T U B I. You can also find it on. But it is less moody. It is less. You know the mood and the tone and the horror get drained out when you know more about it. Because when you take when you put color into shadows, it's less dark. Because when you have the shadows as black, it's consuming shadow that's just very horrific. I liked it
0: better in black and white me because too. the black of Zaroff's outfit just really popped, uh, and and also it made me think, what is in the shadows of this jungle? You know also it you know, I have not seen a colorized version of King Kong, and I hope not to. It still it stuns in black and white. So in the reason I bring up King Kong is because there are some things that I see in the most dangerous game that I also see in King Kong. For some reasons, which I will let you elucidate very shortly. I mean, <laughs> Cause I'm dying, dying one to talk of the things
1: was that the jungle sets that Walt King Kong was developing, it uh, it came out in thirty three. by the way, well, ni- mi- 1933, which is, this is a year before. So while they're developing this, they also had to share the set with the most dangerous game, as was being uh, filmed. And um, that's pretty cool. And also, a couple of other things are related to things such as the, the producer and uh, some of the actors. But uh, I'll talk about that um, right about now, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. Great. Yeah, you know, I'll start with the director first of this movie. Okay. Because there's not very much on, you know, production. So we're just jumping into cast kind of. But um, so we have his name is Irving Pischel. It's a pretty weird name. And um, basically, uh, start of his life, he's a he's a theater man. After graduating Harvard, and uh, he moved to Los Angeles, where they, he then studied acting at the Pasadena Playhouse. Is what it's called. It's it kind of sounds Pasadena. Pasadena, but right <laughs> <laughs> instead it's okay. of a house where plays are performed, that kind of sounds like something that you take your child to, like the the kids areas of like <laughs> arcades or something in
0: theater. They call it a house,
1: like a a house
0: show or house lights or house staff.
1: But this is a playhouse because it's a house where plays are performed.
0: Absolutely. He
1: then got a claim for playing Lazarus in um, it was a 1927 performance of the play Lazarus Left. So that's pretty cool. He was then contracted into Paramount, and he was an actor throughout the 30s and um. A couple of movies he was in. He was uh, he, he was in the once scandalous The Story of Temple Drake nineteen thirty three. Also a film called Juarez, which was uh thirty nine, great year. And um another one that we're gonna be doing in our second season most likely is Dracula's daughter. He played Sandor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Dracula's daughter, yeah. Um the other thing is that um, that that was his acting roles. Did he direct You know, like he'll do, he'll direct a couple, then act three or four, then direct a couple.
1: Yeah, he would. He would act and then direct. And uh, he also did radio as well, playing small parts in several films. And then he also later directed them, often without credit. Wow, Um, He was the narrator in a movie called How Green Was My Valley, uh, 1941.
0: That was a very popular movie.
1: Yes, and uh, the Western...
0: Those were were both very popular. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, starring in How Green Was My Valley was a young Roddy McDowell, who we, you and me, are going to see Roddy McDowell because he plays Cornelius in Planet of the Apes, which when we get to the 60s, we'll see Roddy McDowell there and cornelius is like him, one of my favorite roles that he ever plays he's just his, his voice is iconic and i'm like anyway
1: and if you didn't if you didn't hear that that was how green was my valley from 41 and uh the western she wore a yellow ribbon from uh, 1949
0: yeah also uh did didn't is there another movie that we're going to watch that he directed Um, uh, my uh destination moon Ah, Destination Moon
1: came out in the fifties. The classic cheesy era.
0: Well, well, th- this one was is when they were trying to be more realistic uh, with their predictions of space travel, and a lot of the stuff in that movie uh, was praised for being very, at least attempt at, re- be at more realism and really
1: compared to you know the Jules Verne kind of stuff. Yeah, we haven't experienced the Jules Verne stuff. Well, I mean, wait, we did a trip to the moon, right? Yes. We didn't do the one with the train. He made a story about, it's a famous story about riding a train up to the moon.
0: Yeah, we, did, we didn't We did do that. We talked about it, though. Yes. Uh, we, we are going to do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We'll probably do a journey to the center of the earth.
1: Those are all great ones.
0: There's also, I think, there's one called Master of the World, uh, which is about a a villainous Character, I think that has a flying machine that that just, uh, you know, he he terrorizes the countryside, uh, like a flying trogdor. door. Uh, no, I'm kidding. All right, so, but uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of that. Now, um, Destination Moon did get some awards uh, for the special effects, uh, which, you know, if you see them, you're like, oh, th- those are pretty good. But they were probably really good for the time. If you put yourself. In the shoes of the person watching the movie, then you know you're kind of like, you know, wow, you know that's that's amazing, but we're probably looking at it going, eh, it's kind of cheesy, so we'll have to wait and see. I have not seen Destination Moon, so we'll have to see if it if it comes across as cheesy, but or that'll realistic.
1: be in a while so yeah, quite a P. while Coke directed several B movies until he signed with Century Fox in nineteen thirty nine and uh much of his directing work was uh anti nazi and very pro british in uh the years before the united States entered the world war two which uh was in the forties as i recall
0: but i think uh the fact that he filmed a movie that was anti nazism you wouldn't think that that would be you know a wrong thing to do uh at all but later on you uh when you get into the into the fifties and they had the uh the big communism scare where where the House on American Activities Committee.
1: Oh yeah, I'm about to talk about that. Yeah. But I'll I'll save that for slightly later. I just wanted to say a quote yeah, from go ahead. uh the New York Times writer, uh, Bosley Crother. He said, For the most part, um, Irving Pischel, the director, has muted the frightfulness of war and shown it through suggestion instead of displaying it realistically in all of its horror. So that you that was kind of what you we were talking about is um Suggestion versus realistic, showing, graphic stuff. And uh, that's interesting. I think that the former is much more scary, definitely, when there's the suggestion. It's just, like, more horrifying. Because your imagination can cause a lot of horror in it. Because, especially when you're in the dark you imagine spooky things, you can get scared more easily than when you know what's in the light. So... It's like a human psychology thing, so that's fairly interesting. So what things that we don't know about are more scary than things we do know about. Yeah, sometimes. And that's used to great effect in many board films and movies.
0: Yeah, uh, Alfred,
1: Alfred Hitchcock famously uh, was very good at that. But I haven't really, I don't think I've seen any Alfred Hitchcock movies. I uh, We better go see some, maybe sometime.
0: Yes, I think that there's a lot of them that you you actually might like. You know, things like uh, Rear Window, uh, which is about a man who he's trying to get over a broken leg or something. He's like in a wheelchair and he's stuck just looking out the window uh, with a telescope. And all he can do is just look at the apartment building across from him and he thinks he sees a possible murder and he can't do anything about it. He's just like, you know That's spooky. Yeah, and that's those are and, and as you see a lot of the of the movie through this character's eyes. So there's a lot of those movies out there that, that are very suspenseful. He did do some, some comedy now and again, but there was even a movie I think he did called Rope, where it just took place in like two rooms. But it was just like you're you know, you're sweating. You just sweating watching this movie, going.
1: And you're like Vertigo. I think was also an Alfred Hitchcock. movie. Yeah,
0: Vertigo really plays with you know somebody has a fear of heights, and they have to.
1: They really know... do stuff with the camera. Yeah, camera they. they
0: oh, they do definitely. And of course, the most famous uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie uh, is is Psycho, which uh, it was very controversial for the time because of how. You know, straightforward. It just it just treated the entire the horror of a, of a serial killer. Um, you know, b- before you could show any lots of gore, you know they would they were showing blood and it was just like what you know people were freaked out by that.
1: This was pre haze. Uh, well, the haze code was then, wasn't it? The, this was post haze code. Yeah, this is post haze code though. It was even you know more shocking because you know they let that stuff get on screen. What are you doing? And then let's talk about Huwak which was uh, the House Committee of Un-American Activities, um, but is abbreviated as HUAC, which... Yeah, it's
0: basically commie hunt.
1: It's put put out of order, but still called HUAC for some reason. It's the House Un-American Activities Committee. Yeah, they just swapped around stuff for some reason. Yeah. But uh, Pischel came under scrutiny by them despite his patriotism, and um, it was also co-founded and steered by a, a congressman. His name is Johnny Rankin probably ranking some dudes. Oh. He's, he, was, he was against Jews and Americans. That's something that they wanted to say in Wikipedia, I guess. Oh, he he was anti-Semite? An Anti-Semitic and anti-American, I guess. Yeah, let's put it this way. Double whammy. In, he's, he, he, I think he was Jewish. P- Pish, Pishel was. Yeah, Pishel.
0: Well, P- Pishel is a Jewish last name, yes.
1: Yes, yeah, so he's Jewish and American, so that's well, a double whammy. Well,
0: I'm sure if anybody's listened to our podcast up till now... They know that we are very anti anti semite. Yeah, yes. We we want to officially say that we are anti anti semite. So sh- wait, are we just should we just say we're pro semitic? Well, look, we're just we're human beings. Let's just say that we're human beings. We love Jews. We love Jews. All right. So yeah, but but uh you know we're we're on the side of Irving Pischel. we're on the side of uh uh Conrad Vite uh we, that's that's that I think that's the side of history that that uh is good, is the good and the honorable and the respectful and the human
1: so then like most people who came under scrutiny by Huac in the late uh 40s he went into film noir as as usual most people just go into the film noir genre which was, uh, very popular, um, uh, about this era, I guess. Yeah. Um, 47, Pichel was one of the 19 members of the Hollywood community who is known as the Hollywood 19 or the Unfriendly 19 because, uh, they refused to name suspected communist agents to the committee, the, the HUAC. And, um, they were requested a court document, which was put as a very complicated word, so I just simplified to requested a court document. Subpoenaed. Right. So people suspected that Pischel was a communist. And it wasn't clear that he'd ever been a communist, but they assumed he had communist sympathies because he had directed anti Nazi films such as The Man I Married, 1940. And they investigated him on a case of premature anti fascism. Okay, 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 yeah, this, so. This is weird. <laughs>
0: Well, let me explain something uh you know uh nowadays you know we hear things we hear that term antifa right it stands for an, uh, anti fascist what it really is was it was you know there you remember how that how there was the Nazi party and the communists were and the socialists were against each other in yeah, a way kind of so well the the communists uh had you know were often called anti fascist so really when someone says antifa nowadays or, or anti fascist they're really, they they sound like they're just going after modern day Nazis, but really, it's, so it's just like
1: yeah, Nazis are terrible. I I'd be against them, but the, this most likely meant communist instead of like anti fascist. You'd think it's a good thing, yeah. but It's really well, not a good thing. I they guess were, I don't really they were they were
0: saying well, he was he was anti Nazi, which to them equaled anti fascist, and anti fascist equaled communist. But here's the thing, uh. This was World War II. Don't you think we all would have been anti Nazi? Because the Nazis were part of the Axis powers, and we were the Allied forces, and we were against them. I know. This is confusing. We're communists then. Yeah, the fact that they were uh, using the fact that he did an anti Nazi movie to say that he was communist. And the thing is, you know, nowadays there actually are modern day communists, and it's not against the law you're not breaking the law by being a socialist or a communist at all. It's just, it's just that they thought that that was, you know, the enemy. And you didn't, and the thing is, and as an actor or director, you didn't even have to say anything incriminating. They would do what they call blacklist.
1: Yeah, they forced, they forced you to leave the United States, which is what happened to Pischl, Um even though he was cleared. Uh, he, he did, he did get chronic heart disease, which led to his death in 54, but, Anyway, he was blacklisted, and so he had to leave the U.S. in order to direct his final pictures. And uh, finally, Pischel's friend, his name is Joe Youngerman, he was an assistant director in Hollywood. He later confirmed that Pischel was indeed, in fact, a member of the Communist Party. So they were right. Yeah,
0: but why they were they were making that illegal somehow, uh, when, and I think that what they were trying to do, honestly, was say communist equals you know Russia um and that and because there were incidences where there were Russian spies here in America at the time uh either you know, either they they were real or they were plants we don't you know I'd say they were real and they anything that was a threat to the United States they would connect it with that so if you were just interested you know there was situations where um I think they were, they even went after, you know, you know, I love, you know, show I love Lucy. Yeah. Lucille Ball. They went after her because I think her husband was Cuban and that she, you know, in Cuba was communist. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing was is they saw anybody with any ties whatsoever to anything as, as if you, if you thought you saw a really good looking young lady and she was at a Going to a communist rally or whatever, you're like, hey, I'm I'm gonna go there to hang out with her, and they're like, uh, and they handed me a uh, you know a couple of brochures, and I took them back to my apartment, but you know I was really trying to get a date with this girl. It doesn't matter if they remember that they saw you there or you signed a, a sheet of paper
1: saying that you were at that meeting, they can ruin your whole career, man. So, a couple other people were that we have the producer. His name is Ernest B. Schoed. Schodsak? Schodsack. that's kinda hard to say. But yeah, um, it is. he was six foot five, but apparently he was still called Shorty by people. So wow. I guess his name was Ernest B. Shortstack. Oh. That that's that's what I'm gonna say from now on. So <clears throat> oh boy. Sh- Shortstack, he took part in World War One. So he was he was a warman, but he was also a cameraman as well during that time. Another fact is that he also produced on King Kong, which we're also covering. He even directed Son of Kong, which we're also covering. We which are kind of funny if you count producers as sons of directors. Then that's kind of funny. Uh,
0: I think it was I think it was a gentleman named Marion C. Cooper. I think directed that for RKO,
1: and uh, um, he also directed Mighty Joe Young, which was another gorilla movie, uh, 1949. Man,
0: this show set guy loves jungles and gorillas.
1: Yeah, you might say that he's joined up with them, and is he really human at all? No one knows. So, um, this movie includes a great tag team of protagonists and antagonists, uh, the actors for Rainsford and Zaroff, who are Joel McCrea and Leslie Banks, respectively, and, uh, Joel McCrea, he was uh, he was a California man, and he was also a very popular actor. There's a ton of movies that uh, he was in, including and, he, and, he was in Hitchcock movies as well, as lo- along with Leslie Banks as well. They they look perfect for that, like Alfred Hitchcock movies, definitely. Yeah, and uh, McCrea was very popular. He was uh, he was an RKO dude, so a ton of RKO productions, probably Hitchcock did. uh, release them with RKO, and, uh, he was an RKO dude, and, uh, another thing to note is that Joel McCrea, he did westerns, um, since 1946, so he literally did nothing but westerns.
0: He's got a very clean-cut look. Definitely. He's almost, he almost reminds me of those, you know, those, those universal movie stars, except he's, he's a different breed, because he's more charismatic. I think, Uh, so a lot more as you get into the 30s and 40s and 50s, you're going to see this, the leading man kind of type. He's got a nice, clean jaw. He's charismatic. Perfect for adventuring. Yeah, you know, it's very much so, you know, uh, setting the standard for, um, you know, characters of the 80s, like Indiana Jones, you know, with that that nice jawline and charismatic rogues. Kind of a little bit dangerous, you know? The ladies love him, and the gloves the guys love to
1: be him. But however, Zaroff, he's played by a British actor. You know, uh, Leslie Banks was born in Liverpool, which is... That's uh, home of the Beatles. Yes, the Beatles. And he does bring a lot of that British accent into his character, although he's supposed to be Russian, but he doesn't really act Russian. Oh, also, one small fact. Zaroff couldn't be both a Cossack and a Count, because Cossacks had an equalist society. They didn't have ranks at all, so it couldn't be a count. Well, gen- generals they did have, I'm pretty sure, but not counts. They changed it from a general to a count, by the way.
0: They do say that there's a character in this movie that they do say is a Cossack, and that's
1: Ivan. As well, yes. Yes. They're both Russians. or It's kind of like Russia and Poland. It's like in between those, I think, is uh, the land of the Cossacks. So that's all I wanted to talk about for this movie, except for Noble Johnson.
0: Yes, get to Noble Johnson. Um, I would like to say one thing about Noble Johnson. Uh, We have seen him before in uh, The Mummy. He played the Nubian, and he is a tall... Uh, muscular African American gentleman.
1: And if you look at Louis Armstrong and you look at him, the resemblance is uncanny almost, but still.
0: It's very similar, but so the thing about it that I did not think about is I was like, okay, Noble Johnson, we're gonna see him again in the Most Dangerous Game. Oh that's interesting. Also King Kong. Oh that's interesting. And uh and also Murders in the Rue
1: Morgue. That's interesting. What I didn't uh, expect was that noble johnson played ivan
0: yes he is a cossack guy
1: and he has a black beard and a white face and a different facial structure and maybe a little bit of forehead wrinkles as well but
0: yes and i think that they do something you know with his hair and they give him white skin in in room but here's the thing uh, did you not mention that something that uh, to me the other day that that he knew Lon Chaney? Yeah, the man of a thousand faces, and I made the, the kind of the off color joke that that so to speak, that uh, Noble Johnson was the man of a thousand races because the thing is, if they needed somebody that was big and muscular, the, and they didn't they didn't think, oh, let's go to a white guy. They're
1: like, let's just get Noble Johnson, he's great, and then we'll just put makeup on him. It'll be great. And this is the first instance of this. This is the earliest instance of a black person playing a white character.
0: Yeah, we, we were const we we've seen, you know, white characters playing black characters not very With well. Blackface, should... obviously. Yeah. yeah. You remember uh remember the guy from uh The Lost, Lost World? World? Yeah. He played it very uh offensively. Um, I know he was thought he was doing his best, but it, he was really kind of making fun of black people by the way he was acting. And that was a common thing. I don't think people did that to kind of you know give a truth to the African-American like, experience. Like, for instance,
1: the movie uh, that most people uh, probably can heard of, but not like most people, some people, is a Holiday Inn. Yeah. They have one time where they do have put on a blackface show. That was common. Among this, yeah, time, but st- or rather, the time that Lost World came out and such. it was
0: still it was still shocking though. You know, I, I watched Holiday Inn and I was like, yikes! I mean, I know that it's it's a beloved musical, but when they get to that scene, I'm always kind of going dreading it, going, oh help me, Lord! But but the thing about that I really respect about Noble Johnson, I know we haven't seen a lot of his work, but he plays the parts that he's given, and he does what he needs to do to make it work. And I like the fact that they just went, you know, it just, I it am it, I know it's, it's, yeah, I know it's very common nowadays to have actors play just about any role that they want to play and put on some makeup. But I just thought it was kind of cool that, that he was doing that because I was kind of shocked going, they didn't play, play him according to type. They let him, you know, play a, 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 a European role uh, because, you know, he was, he was a big guy. So, the, I just, I don't know, I just like the fact that they let him do it.
1: And an even funnier thing is that nowadays, with, you know, Disney and the Book of Boba Fett, this is probably going to be a revolution in film, funnily enough, for the new era, is deep faking people's faces. So, it didn't matter who the actor was, you could just steal an actor's face. And I do find trouble with that, but... Yeah,
0: but most of the time, I'd probably you know,
1: put you know the seventy-year rule on it that most people do for Creative Commons stuff. The, uh, this movie actually is in the Creative Commons because it's old enough. By the way, didn't get yeah, renewed. Yeah, But um, I treat it as the if the person has been dead for seventy years, maybe consider it. But I don't really know. Lu- Luke Hamill, uh, Mark Mark Hamill, Mark Hamill, um, is still alive today though, but. So well, I'm sure really I'm
0: sure they got his I'm sure they got his his blessing. Yeah, permission and blessing. So, this this uh, movie, the most dangerous game, uh I have a little bit of information that you might find interesting. Uh it's about how influential this movie is uh specifically in reference to its plot. Uh the plot seems very uh, straightforward. A uh, hunter has become the hunted. Man has become Hunted like an animal on an island or some you know a, a place that's that's excluded from regular society and civilization. If you think that you've heard this plot before, that's because the plot has been lifted from the most dangerous game, both the short story and this film. And it has been rubber stamped over dozens and dozens and dozens of TV shows, video games, Cartoons, movies, TV show, uh, Darcy TV show? Yeah. Tons of media, I should say. It's all over the place. Um, If you'd like, I can give you some. Give you some of the examples. Yep. And some of these I have seen, uh, I've seen the movie versions of these, and I can definitely attest that it's true. Uh, So, first off, this movie was actually remade a couple of different times. Um, first off in 1945, it was called a game of death. It was directed by Robert Wise. Uh, I believe this is the same Robert Wise that directs Star Trek, the motion picture, which we will do on the podcast, uh, in quite a few seasons. Um, game of death was also produced by RKO, uh, pictures. It, uh, it changes the name Zaroff into Eric Krieger. A Nazi, and it is set in the af- aftermath of World War II, it's because of course it's 1945. Um, you know, so it's a Nazi guy hunting people on the island. Um, let's see, there's a couple other ones throughout the years, but uh, let's see, 1987, a movie called Deadly Prey. A former soldier is kidnapped by mercenaries who train by hunting innocent people. Uh, there's one that I went to the theater and saw. Uh, it's a favorite director of mine. His name is uh, John Woo. John Woo does a lot of action movies. Uh, you know, he started in Hong Kong, and I mean, a lot of my favorite action movies. Uh, just, just with that, with that very stylized action in it. It's, 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 uh, it's you know, breakneck pace, bullets, bullets of plenty. Um, he did a movie called. Uh, uh, they did a movie that he did only in America called Hard Target. Came out in 1993. It stars Jean Claude Van Damme uh, in New Orleans. Homeless Vietnam War veterans voluntarily serve as human prey for the hunt. So they're hunting homeless people that used to be Vietnam vets because it's more challenging.
1: That's weird.
0: Jean Claude Van Damme's character Chance. Uh, gets involved to stop them, and he becomes hunted himself, because they're like, oh, he's he's even better. Uh, Surviving the Game, starring Rudger Hauer, Ice-T, and Charles Dutton, uh, but there's a homeless man who's hired as a survival guide for a group of wealthy businessmen on a hunting trip in the mountains, and then they wake him up the next day and go, guess what? We're hunting you. That's what this has all been you know, leading up to, is we didn't get you as a tour guide, for the for this wooded area, you're about to be hunted, and so they release him to get hunted.
1: That that's weird. Yeah. I, uh, name some comic book ones as well.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I definitely can. So, uh, one of the most famous uh Spider-Man villains, Craven the Hunter, who is actually getting his own solo movie. Hopefully, it does uh, better than Morbius and Venom did. Uh, it, it the the character Craven Craven the Hunter. He he's uh, he's actually called Sergei Kravenoff so he's based off of General Zaroff. He, he hunts Spider-Man. He considers him the most elusive prey of all. And he's the only one uh, capable of presenting him with any kind of challenge. Um, there's a really great storyline called Craven's Last Hunt, which uh, he not only succeeds at the goal of hunting him down, but he impersonating and outperforming Spider-Man before committing
1: suicide.
0: Okay. What?
1: Yes. Comic books uh, got wacky once yeah. they stopped obeying the comic book code. Also,
0: Craven's son, uh, Alyosha, uh, he once kidnapped dozens of villains with animal motifs like Man-Ape and the Rhino, uh, probably Vulture as well, uh, and set them loose on a remote island and went hunting him down. He, he like lost his mind, uh, and he got ir- he was very irrational during the whole thing. Also, there's a movie called Battle Royale which is uh about Japanese high schoolers who are forced to play Fortnite. No, they they <laughs> fight, they try to kill each other for sport. Same thing. Yeah, exactly. The trick with that is that um this movie that movie is very controversial because it had teenagers like actually like appearing to kill each other. Well, then look at the
1: Hunger Games
0: then. That that's also what what was based off of Hunger Games. Hunger Games and different other movies like that were also... Also, the character of Van Pelt from Jumanji. He was a British uh, hunter, and he would hunt down man as if he was the most dangerous game.
1: Cool. What's the last one, then?
0: I'll give you one. uh, I could go on and on, but I'm going to give you one last one. This is a movie that is not one we are going to cover, but it's very famous. It's called Predator.
1: Yes, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Get to the
0: yes, it's about. Uh, it came out in I think eighty seven. It's about an uh, an alien who comes here to Earth who hunts humans uh, for sport as trophies. And that has parallels with this movie because that it quite does. literally
1: happens. So it
0: does, and it it's had lots of sequels. Uh, you know, some of them in keeping with that same. You know, that se- they keep the same elements of the of the character of the predator and in some it's kind of like they go a little far afield with it but predator is probably the most pure of all of those in keeping the the most dangerous game uh themes so yeah that's all i can tell you for now i could again i could go on for hours but i'm not going to
1: so instead let's end our podcast or rather start to um i'm gonna tell you one thing just like you did last time, you asked me a question. I'll ask you another question. It's a joke that I looked up. I don't really get it, but here you go. What was written on the hunting board? Bear left. Bear left? I I don't know.
0: I, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't, is, that a, is that a very old joke?
1: I don't know.
0: I think it's going over my head like like the bullets from Zaroff's rifle as he hunts me like a jaguar
1: I hail thee I hail thee save our ship save our ship welcome Again, to the 13th episode of Cinematic Fantastic. Joining us today, yet again, is Jason Weatherford. We are back from break, and uh, we're about to break it on down for you. Into the most dangerous game, which, to remind y'all, it was adapted from the original, which was authored by a guy named Richard Connell, and produced by RKO Radio Pictures. Our very first, in fact. Yes. And hopefully not our last. We should... King King Kong was made by RKO? So there's bound to be stuff I can talk about RKO then. Yeah, of course. Definitely. So
0: I was just thinking, let's take this joke to its logical conclusion. What would the most dangerous game be? I was thinking thinking Electric uh, Twister. Like you know, like like a, electroshock twist twister. Uh, give give me a, a game that you think would would be even more dangerous by adding uh, a risky component to it.
1: Oh, definitely, it would be Red Rover on skates, <laughs> right next to a nice little big pile of uranium ore. <laughs> are,
0: you, are you saying that that if you played for long enough, you you might start melting? Is that what it is?
1: You would fall over onto the nice cold. Warm and cold, but kind of spiky uranium ore, and then it would it, it would explode all of your atoms. So it's like, I just wanted a, m- a rock massage, and what did I get? What about, uh, circular saw frisbee? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So, but in, in the book, the supposed most dangerous game was actually Buffalo. So apparently he had gotten an injury and fractured his skull from Buffalo, and so then that's where Zaroff goes, but Buffalo isn't the most dangerous game after all, and then he asks what, but then he gets delayed for an extreme amount of time, which is very suspenseful, until he finally fesses up and says it's a men. That's what happens in the book.
0: That's kind of what happens in in the movie. But they don't talk about
1: buffalo. They talk about jaguars.
0: No, he does say that he, that a, uh, that a, I think a water buffalo or an ox or something like that uh, grazed his head. Like there's a part, every, a lot of times he'll start, like he'll rub his, the side of his head where he had the wound. They don't say that he was cracked or, you know, like a fracture. They do talk about like it's a scrape or something, but it gives him a headache. So, um, yeah, there, there are some differences, and as we go, definitely, you know, stop me and, and uh, mention some of those if you want
1: to. So let's explore Ship Trap Island. Ship Trap Island? Um, in the book, it's called Ship Trap Island, supposedly by the sailors, because it traps ships there, kind of like the Bermuda Triangle. That's very on the nose. And you know what else is on the nose? The Death Swamp. It's literally called The Death Swamp. It, in the in the, in the the movie, it's called Fog Hollow. Yeah, that one is a bit less on the nose, but Death Swamp is just very stark. Fog Hollow sounds like uh, an old Disney show with a
0: bunch of uh, puppet otters or something that live in a bayou, and they all like sing songs and play on a jug band or oh, something. Oh, you mean
1: Wind in the Willows, that is? no. <laughs> Wind in the Fog Hollows. Wind in the Fog Hollows, where they're playing in the bayou, but they're British. British by. There used to be a show called Emmett the Otter's Jug Band Christmas or something. I don't know what it was. That sounds like a wild time. And so is this going to be. So let's jump into it. Let's jump into it. So, uh I think we have been blessed
0: with uh having interesting titles. I mean, we had Pyramid, we had uh the Watershore uh flowing up and and sh- and showing, you know, words. Uh we had um, in White Zombie, we had the uh the bongo drums, you know, in beat revealing the word "zombie." I think with this one, the the titles uh, are revealed by a hand that's knocking a knocker on a on a, a castle door,
1: and it has a gargoyle centaur on it. Yeah,
0: we later realize it's Count Zaroff's castle front door. It looks like a beast centaur man hit with an arrow but he's holding a human like either a long-haired man or a woman and later we realize it's a woman
1: but it is another yet another very creative intro. Yeah, I agree.
0: At, right after that, of course, you know, we're tantalized with that with that. We're going, "What is this?" But then where we go straight to a ship that's traveling through some rough waters. We find out that it's a hunting expedition uh with some people who are there for adventure. They probably have some money to spend to go on such a voyage, you know, because you know, that's kind of the privilege of that. Uh, The captain is a little bit nervous because these uh, light buoys are possibly off track, meaning that they're going to head into some of the most coral reef and shark infested waters ever. Uh, He goes to try to talk
1: to the men and they summon Robert Rainsford or Bob Rainsford. Which is again a change from the book, which again has a very interesting name. His name is Sanger Rainsford. But this has obviously been simplified because Americans cannot pronounce Sanger. However, I am an American, in fact, and from the South as well, so I can pronounce that very easily. Boom! Take that. So they
0: are. Uh, they there is a doctor um, who is on the expedition, and they're looking through photos of previous hunting expeditions that Bob has done, and because they, they they you know they ask him to come up the stairs and talk to him. And he asks Rainford, Rainsford, he says, if the shoe was on the other foot and you were the tiger instead of the hunter, would it still be sport or how would he feel? I was
1: thinking of the inconsistency of civilization. The beast of the jungle, killing just for his existence, is called savage. The man, killing
0: just for sport, is called civilized. So he says it's a bit contradictory.
1: They do have this conversation in the book too, by the way, but it's instead it's with one character and his name is Whitney. Yeah. So uh, Rainsford
0: seems to think that because the tiger could have left and got away at any time, and he didn't, that it was somehow a sport for the tiger as well as the hunter. Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch, but he's kind of just you know he's kind of injecting his story with a little bit of drama. I get I get it. Uh, the, you know th- this is a common theme in the movie: the hunter or the hunted. Which one are you? And how do you feel about being either one? But as
1: Whitney says in the book, he says that the one thing that the hunted do understand is fear. It's what both of them understand. Both
0: the hunter and the hunted both understand fear, right?
1: Yes. Uh,
0: that's, that's a ni- uh, nice sentiment in that. Uh, the doctor doesn't quite get his answer, right? And strangely enough, just like those movies where somebody says, Oh, what's the worst that could happen? Or everything's going to be A-OK. Something is about to happen. So uh, Rainsford says, "I won't have to answer that question because I'm always going to be the hunter." I'm like, "Uh, yeah, you're asking for it." I mean, you're at you're you know you're making the plot go a different way, aren't you? But just by saying that. So after that, they do hit reefs or something, and it's one of the fastest shipwreck scenes I've ever seen in my However, life. However,
1: do notice that this boat it's it's a model. It's a model boat. Of course it is. it's cool but that we get to see that used again in a non-bumper setting. Last time was, uh, it was the Lost World, right? That was when we saw models that weren't used in an intro or an outro. But we haven't seen that in a while. No, remember in
0: Dracula, there was a big, uh, there was a really big storm with a ship. But it wasn't at the beginning, was it?
1: Um, it was near the beginning.
0: So I was just thinking of that that was a model ship in a big, you know, a big, uh, uh, they had the, on these on these sets. Sometimes they had a whole area that was just just water. It was just supposed to be uh, the ocean. Um, we are going to see that a lot, especially when we get to the giant monster movies. You know, with the man in a suit uh, like Godzilla, uh, we're going to see uh, a lot of these you know fake ocean sets with uh, with ships and uh, monsters destroying it. So anyway, back to this. And I'm telling you, I was my jaw was dropped at how quick and staccato the scenes were of. You know, the guy, they, they go, uh, hope the water doesn't hit that boiler. Oh, it does. Boom. Like seconds later, that explosion. Of course, everybody on this ship except for Rainsford is, is an NPC. I mean, that's absolutely true. Everybody's expendable. They're all red shirts. It's really the most important thing is that he gets off uh, the ship. And he, this is his story, after all. Uh, so they all end up clinging to pieces of wood, the ship, or trying to swim. To a couple of the guys are like, trying to swim, and they're pushing each other under the water to try to, you know, get above water. But
1: when the ship explodes, like, their screams are unnecessarily horrifying. Like, goodness me, that kind of spooked me. It, it, it's that that's spooky, man. Don't don't do that to me. Don't do that to me, man. So it's it's every man for themselves. But what I ex uh what I suspect this is the reason of is because you know they use the sets from King Kong, so maybe they use the screams from King Kong as well.
0: Well, they did. There's one person in this movie they didn't have to use any pre-recorded screams for because she was one of the best screamers in the business. Her name <laughs> is, is Faye Ray. We'll we'll get to Faye. Talk about Faye later. Um, so, while they're clinging, clinging to wood for deer life, the sharks come in. The stock footage of sharks, I should say.
1: But, I mean, okay. I mean, shark, sharks just don't eat people like that. They wouldn't just go and eat people. Not very often, anyway.
0: We, honestly, the if you really want the truth, and I think as we get through movies here that where sharks are mentioned... Uh, sharks kill a lot less
1: people on planet Earth than we think they do. They're a lot more complex organisms.
0: Humans humans kill a lot more sharks than sharks kill humans. Because what happens is this, William, a shark will kill a human or attack or attack a human because they either go in the wrong area. Uh, there's different different things that they do to make the shark think that's their prey. They'll bite and then and they won't. Uh, they thinking that it's one thing and it's a it's not what it's not their normal prey. And then uh, you know they'll they'll go oh there was a shark attack off the coast of blah blah and then a bunch of hunters will get together in boats and go out there and the you know because and they'll just release uh, them out there to to kill them and and a lot more sharks get killed than actually you know bit the person.
1: But another thing that also could definitely kill sharks is batteries. They will go and attack batteries because they can sense electrical signals. That's true. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So make sure not to drop uh, anything with a battery in it that might be dead and leaking. If so, then they'll be drawn to the electrical signals. Think it gets a fish.
0: I bet you they'd really love the Energizer Bunny. Uh, But you can't stop the Energizer Bunny. He keeps going. No,
1: I think they prefer Duracell. (laughs) Duracell is
0: the copper top. I don't know if that... Is there another... Anyway, I think we're getting off track. So all that's left of the uh, of the uh, ship is Bob Rainsford. He swims to shore, and he finds uh, the island he's found himself on. It's heavily entangled with jungle and woods. He does hear uh, hunting dogs, which later it makes me think that maybe he has come in when uh, a couple other people have been are, are being hunted. Uh, and, and, you know, that they talk about later, and they maybe that's the hunt that's going ongoing right
1: now. Uh, but in the book, um, let's talk about the shipwreck. Okay, yeah, go ahead, real quick. Was that, uh, in the beginning of the book, Rainsford, he stands on a deck, he's, you know, smoking a briar, and then he hears gunshots coming from the island, which then results in him falling overboard, because he lost his cigarette over the side. So he went and jumped after it, but then lost balance. That's funny. Um
0: that must be a really good cigarette because I would just be like whoops a lot of cigarette. And then the cigarette. yacht just drives away without him. Wow. Uh that's not as dramatic as the shipwreck uh, in the movie. Definitely. Yeah. So um he get now the, you start seeing a little taste, a small taste of what you're going to get a lot of in later in the la- latter half of the movie and that is the set of this movie. It's like I said, I can't say enough about it. Um, it's one of the big selling points of this movie honestly uh it the set is
1: great um especially since it was borrowed from a great movie in the making yes and 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 honestly it says march and uh march second nineteen thirty three in New York and the rest of the united states and uh In April? Yeah. Um, And this movie was released in September, so they were definitely working on the movie over the summer.
0: Yeah. So the other other thing that I would say is that, um, let's put it this way, I saw King Kong first because it's the more famous of these movies, and I saw this movie after that. The reason that I saw this movie is because there was a... Uh, and I wish I had seen it earlier in my life, but i there's another movie that i uh, I really like. Um, it's called Zodiac and it's about the zodiac killer.
1: Oh, and that has references to the most dangerous game it it does in
0: a way because there is a possible uh suspect the, the, somebody says I had a, f- a friend and he always used to say that the most dangerous game was his favorite movie and 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 such and such and it and it's like really. Because in one of the Zodiac killer's uh, notes that he sent to the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, this these riddles, these ciphers that he had, when you translate it, it said something about he wanted
1: to hunt the most dangerous animal of all, and that's kind of like, in other words, he's saying that he murders people.
0: Yeah, and what he's doing is kind of a hint, or rather, addendum mortis, addendum mortis. So that was just a uh, it, it led the main character to go try to hunt down what he thought was the suspect, but it turns out that it was a red herring. It wasn't necessarily, uh, he's, he's kind of obsessed, but, and he's seeing things that aren't there as far as, uh, as far as dangers. Um, but anyway, the, the fact I'd never heard of that movie, um, I'd had maybe a little bit. And so then I, I, I found, I looked up that movie and I thought it was really good. So I saw it after I saw King Kong. And so when I'm watching most dangerous game. And as, as we'll go through the movie, there's certain parts where I, my my brain just went, ooh, ooh, that's the scene where such and such happens on Skull Island. I was watching the the different sets going. Oh well, that's where that happens. Oh, that oh, that's going to be a good scene. Um, so anyway, so he gets on the island. Yes, he does. Uh, Bob Rainsford finds his way up to the, the gothic looking, almost castle. We later find out it's a fortress, uh, but it's a gothic castle looking thing. It's like a tower. Yeah, it's also this. It's also the uh, where we see the front door. Uh, That's the same door
1: from the titles. Uh, It it looks like something out of Frankenstein or Dracula. Ah, says some good little Mickey Mouse, and when he comes up the steps. Doot, doot, doot,
0: doot. Okay, so Rainsford comes into through the door. He comes into the main den living area.
1: Of course, the door opens with nobody visibly opening it. And the place is huge. It is. It's very it's very like, rustic. Every count has to have an enormous room at the entrance. It makes sense, but it Dracula. Also every baron, the or the guy white zombie guy. Yes, he lived in a castle. They all have the
0: this is this is this is a this is a, a, a trope or a cliche that we're going to see a lot. You know, I think I think they're going to start to uh, modernize a lot more as they go, but we're going to see quite a lot of really crazy looking castles even all the way through uh, the '40s. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what you like about these sets. So there's a big burly looking dude who comes out from behind that door.
1: Yeah, in the book, he just he goes out and he he has a gun and he's just pointed at him and he's just like. I'm going to I'm going to kill you one way or another.
0: Yeah, well the thing is if the guy had pulled out a gun, you'd be you your your mind would go, "Okay, threat level 10 right now." But the fact that, you know, this this burly looking guy, we we find out his name is Ivan, uh, played by Noble Johnson, um he he try he tries to talk to him and he's not answering. So you're kind of like you're more kind of intrigued. And you're scratching your head, which is good, because then it builds the suspense. But if he just had a gun
1: straight away, I think I would just be like, okay. But in this movie, he does kind of, sort of, stand there, menacingly. He's
0: just standing there,
1: menacingly! He is kind of menacingly, but it could be misunderstanding, though. But what I do like is Leslie Banks' performance in this movie. He's, He's kind of, like, I wouldn't say, like, posh, really, but... Kind of. He's upper crust. Upper crust.
0: Yeah, he's very kind of He is kind of posh. But also he's highbrow, as uh, Martin Trowbridge Trowbridge calls him.
1: A very literary person who studies very many books and plays, as we see in the book. The burly
0: guy's not answering, but there is a man in a tuxedo who comes down the stairs in a very dramatic fashion, as you do. Uh, He's not just sitting in the den waiting for them. He has to come down the stairs in a dramatic fashion. He explains that the man's name is Ivan and he is dumb, AKA mute, I guess would be a better way. He cannot speak. According to Xeroff, the fortress here was built by the Portuguese centuries ago. Xeroff uh, suggests that the, he says, says, you're my guest, uh, but you need to g- maybe get changed, get out of those, uh, those wet clothes. So and had kind of have a rest as they're going back up the long staircase. Rainsford sees a tableau or a painting of that beast-like centaur, who's like half man, half beast. So I was thinking about, you know, the the parallels between man who is civilized and the beast which is savage, and he's like part of each.
1: I didn't see that.
0: Well, I, he's a he's kind of a centaur, which is a is is a uh, a running, uh, pursuing kind of creature like a horse. And this other one is like a, it's like a beastly man, but it, yeah, but it has the jaws of a man. Exactly. So so there's there's I just saw that and went ah oh, there's kind of a half beast, half man. So we got a little bit of the civilization versus savagery, you know, kind of going. I don't know. So the uh, after Rainsford uh, is woken up, he of course puts on uh, like hunting, I guess, attire, which is is kind of I guess all that he has in his closet. So uh, Rainsford comes down. Uh, and he's not hungry, but everybody else has already eaten. Rainsford, uh, it realizes that Zaroff has other guests here that have been marooned and he cautions to Rainsford not to, uh, kind of dwell on the stressful situation of his, of his shipwreck. So as not to, um, uh, uh, worry anybody, especially, uh, a female, uh, that we will meet, um, He comes downstairs for some coffee and conversation by the fire, and he meets two people, uh, Eve Trowbridge and her brother Martin Trowbridge.
1: And what I like to remark on this is that compared to the book, they did flesh out this movie by adding characters to also face the count, but they did remove Whitney at the beginning in favor of Eve as a constant companion, as we'll see and this might be a good decision. I don't really know. I think it's good cuz I like Faye Ray. She's she's very
0: watchable. You know, she does what she needs to do to you know, to get you to be interested
1: in the picture. But as I'll discuss later, there are some things I do have issue with compared to the book.
0: Yeah, definitely let me know when you when that comes up. So, Eve uh, mentions that the count saved their lifeboat that held her and her brother Martin and two other sailors, which is an interesting thing to note. Um, it's mentioned that the incorrect channel lights did the trick with getting them busted open on the coral or rocks. I guess they, you know, the, the, at the very beginning they were talking about those channel lights. They, you know, they keep you safe because you're staying away from the, the coral reefs. They were moved, so it kind of makes you not. You you, you just think, oh well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm in a safe spot. But you hit those coral reefs and you're just shipwrecked immediately. They uh, they say that they will report the issue. With the uh, channel lights uh, once they get back to the mainland, but Zerov has only one boat or a launch, I guess he calls it, and it's under repairs. Uh, and Russian Cossacks are terrible mechanics. And, like, you know, uh, yeah, that's I guess that's kind of a, a dig on Ivan that he's not very good. Uh, he's not a very good mechanic. He's a better killer. They're both in King Kong movie. Yes, they are. And they, they play, they're very pivotal characters. Also, you see Denim. Uh, again, uh, or, or Robert Armstrong again in *Son of Kong*, Depp, probably not as good a performance as he does in in that. And you'll see, we'll talk about that when we get closer to it. Uh, when you start to see uh, a, you know, a movie that does really well, okay, then now let's make a sequel to be a cash grab that made money. So let's make something else. And then they don't know what to do with the with the property, you know, the, the franchise. That happens a lot. Yeah,
1: that does happen a lot sometimes.
0: So um, Robert Armstrong plays Martin Trowbridge like a drunk,
1: obnoxious guy. Yeah, because there is so much smoking in this movie. That I was just like, this is a little bit too much. I mean, this is pre code, so. Well, it's I I think it's because you watch a lot of modern movies where you know smoking is died down a, a ton as compared to then, like so much. I mean, it's still around today, but still. They will even put in the rating for a movie that
0: there's lots of smoking. Have you noticed that? Yeah. See, back in the day, back in the day, people would just smoke like chimneys. Uh, they would even have sponsors for the movies like Lucky Strike cigarettes, you know, and it's it's uh, four out of five doctors say it's great for your lungs. And, you know, you know the, sports,
1: the sports cards. Yeah, yeah. The well, baseball cards and the cigarette boxes.
0: Doctors would be like, yeah, they're really good for your lungs and they, they help keep you, you know, uh, fit as a fiddle. And you're like, are you kidding me? I mean, later on we learned that, you know, it caused emphysema, lung cancer, birth defects sometimes. Uh, but it's like...
1: You know, back then, people just smoked like nobody's business. Even on TV, they would just light up. But there is so much smoking in this movie, like, at the beginning, and especially here, that's just, like, it's kind of, like, letting everyone in on their vices. Like, they're just having a celebration. Is this glorification? I don't uh, really it's know.
0: Pr- it's probably pretty normal, but the thing is, you know, smoking is smoking is part of uh, relaxing. Yes. It's also... For Zaroff later, it's a way of celebrating his win. Not to be a spoiler on this, but right. So, uh, I mean, okay. The way that uh, the way that Martin Trowbridge is acting, he's knocking things over. He's being very uncouth. Is as he's kind of low class as the way he acts, as opposed to uh, upper crust like the like the count. It's kind of you can kind of see there's a little bit of a, a annoyance on the count's part. So, uh, and that's definitely not going to keep help his case for staying alive through the movie because annoying people generally, you know, they don't survive. Okay, so Zeroff gives a little snapshot of how he got to this castle. He was in Russia during the Russian Revolution, and he got away with his life, got away with his fortune as well. Uh, Eve spills some coffee at this part on purpose so she can say something to Rainsford. Uh, she's kind of hinting that all is not what it seems. She says, oh, I'm sorry. Count Zarif was so interesting, I didn't realize the danger. And she, like, emphasizes that word. And I think Rain- uh, Rainsford kind of gets it, but he kind of glosses it over. That's okay, this is the first kind of thing to kind of make it look, uh, to let us know that Eve knows something's up and has known something's up, and she's trying to pass it off. So, Zeroff was able to take some of the fortune with him after the Revolution, and he hunted all over the world. Uh, The reason he brings up hunting is because Robert Rainsford is a hunter and has written books, and he's also lived the books, lived them. Because how else would Zeroff know what Rainsford thinks about hunting if, um, I guess, if Robert hadn't written books and and written his thoughts about hunting? Uh, He feels that Rainsford and him are on the same wavelength, you know, it's kind of an old trope where it's like, we're not so different, you and I. I mean, everybody does that from, you know, in Indiana Jones to, you know, Batman and the Joker in, in The Dark Knight. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's when the villain compares himself with the hero. Uh, and he does kind of, at first, find a little bit of... of, of Uh, connection with
1: him in being a hunter. But ultimately, he does not get satisfaction from this hunting after the monotony of having experienced it multiple times. Right. He says that
0: he has hunted almost every animal imaginable all over the planet, Uh, and when he was in South America hunting jaguars, he suddenly realized that he was bored with hunting, and it held no fascination for him. Uh, He tried to hunt just like the uncivilized savages did, but that didn't do it either. He said... uh, I made myself perfect in the use of the tartar wobble. And then and then uh, Martin goes... Tartar And he goes... Tartar wobble. And he goes... That one up there. And I love this line. Uh, Martin goes... It's cute. <laughs> it just sounds like it's cute. I, I like your warble. It's really cute. And I'm like, dude, you're going to get killed. Um, he is kind of the, uh, you know, the, the comic relief a little bit. But he does... Uh, really overplay this drunk act, I have to say.
1: Uh, I like Robert Armstrong in in King Kong better. Sorry. And then from here in the movie, they say, well, here on my island, I hunt the most dangerous game.
0: Title drop. Oh, he said the thing! 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 thing. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't say what what the animal is, though. Martin Trowbridge, uh, he he says that there's some of the animals on the island, some of the other members of their party have been hunting these animals uh, and haven't been seen for four days. That's not ominous at all, is it? Uh, Sounds pretty ominous to me. So Martin says he would greatly like to hunt with Zaroff, and he says that he has a place back in America in the Adirondacks, which is a mountain chain, and he says they could hunt sometime. They'd have lots of drinks. Lots of party and lots of women. Uh, Martin goes off to play the piano badly, and Zaroff and Rainsford have a conversation about women. This is so they're off to the side. It's interesting because it shows, uh, you know, uh, Zaroff's idea about women, which kind of, which that you can't enjoy
1: anything until after a hunt.
0: Yeah, you can't have passion for women till the hunt's over. Your enemy has been destroyed. I mean, he gives a little proverb from a, a African tribe or something. But he said, first the hunt, then you can give in to love,
1: uh, which it's, it just makes women like a trophy. Especially when Zaroff mentions, uh, she says that he thinks that Eve is a child.
0: Every night he sends us off to bed like naughty children.
1: Oh, no, my dear. No. Charming children. So, well, I don't think she's a child. Well, the thing is, in this movie, she does... Break out of that love interest role. She isn't really a love interest in that movie. She does get some love, but she is pretty pro proactive, as we'll see.
0: Yeah, breaking the norm. She does whatever she can, but she her skills. Uh, I mean, I mean. She doesn't really have a chance to use... I mean, we don't even know a lot about her. Like, what did she do when she was back on the mainland? If it was something like, you know, something interesting that kind of helped her and uh, Rainsford. But it ends up being the Rainsford show a lot because he's really trying to protect her. And he's really the hunter, which is just the best skill ever to have purchased for your RPG character at the beginning of this campaign. Uh, I mean, you're going like, "Uh, we're about to go into a thing. uh, I'm going to put all my points in hunting. Uh, that's perfect but but I, I don't know what she put her points in you know what I'm saying yeah most people aren't rangers but she just he decided to she, be a ranger right and did she uh, you know, does she have any kind of abilities that would help out this we don't know at least with a, a movie that was based off some of this idea which would be um, Hunger Games that has a very proactive female character um, who is if she likes somebody it has nothing to do about her being the damsel in distress it has to do about I mean, she takes her destiny in her own hands. The only time she has to act like a uh, a damsel or a love interest is is when it's requested of the fans of the show of the of the Hunger Games. They're like, "Oh, we want to see you and this other guy together." And she's like, "Okay, fine. If we give the people something to talk about, some soap opera angle, then they'll vote us uh, to to live." You know. So they're basically going, "Okay, we got to just play our parts." So it's a very proactive uh uh I think we'll have
1: to put that on our list for later but um so basically Martin gets put into um he gets put into the trophy room well
0: wow, that's that's really fast uh let's slow that down half a step uh okay so Martin mentioned earlier that the count will not tell anybody what the animal is that they're hunting and zarov is like it's a surprise and that Martin says nobody will even be let into his trophy room. Uh, It's all locked off. Uh, The Count says it's a surprise for his guests. So Martin suggests that Zaroff play something fun, not highbrow. But, of course, what does he play? Something highbrow. So Eve takes the opportunity to talk with Rainsford while uh, Zaroff is distracted by his own playing.
1: And she basically says that he's keeping him there, and the boat does not actually need uh, repairs and there are actually yes. four of them, and now there are two, because the other two got taken to the trophy room and have not returned. they never see him again, yeah. So Zeroth
0: finishes, you know, because he, like, glances over his shoulder, and it's like, and they're like, oh, clap, clap, it's over. Uh, Zeroth finishes, and he gaslights Eve into thinking she's sleepy. He's kind of like, oh, I see your eyes are getting droopy, you know, oh, great. He's just kind of, he
1: basically just wants to get everybody, you know, in bed so he can go do some hunting. And so everyone's off to bed, except for Martin and the Count, who then go to the trophy room. First, I like some of the dialogue here. Martin says, Good night, sis. We won't won't be be seeing seeing each each other at breakfast. breakfast.
0: And I'm like, oh, if you only knew. And uh, she wants him to turn in early, because I think she knows that something could happen to him. And he says, The Count will take care of me, all right. I was like, oh, why'd you have to say it like that? So anyway, um, so the Count... Uh, wants to show Martin his trophy room and make a night of it. And it's, it's funny. Like he takes a drink real quick. He says, here's to long life. I'm like, nope, you're not going to have a long life. So, uh, you know, you don't know what's happening. He goes, he goes, I want to show you the trophy room. And then it fades out. In the next scene, Eve, uh, comes into Rainsford room and, uh, saying that she had been waiting for him all night long. He never came, uh, he, her brother never came back to their room, uh, she wants help from Bob in finding Martin. It's you know, And what happened, this whole thing starts like all the others do, uh, at the iron door to the trophy room. So they go, okay, that's where we're going. They sneak in and they find human heads on
1: the walls. And in jars as well, which does not make sense. Like, if you mount heads, why put them in jars as well, man? I didn't see the jars. Yeah, but yeah, they do. And so they hide in the trophy room. Well, this is a scene that
0: the censors did not really like. So, you know, um, Zaroff is coming. And, you know, you can hear him coming down. There. They, they hide. Now, of course, they get found out. Uh, that the uh, Ivan and some of the other guys are bringing in a body or something. Well, you find out it's a body, but it's something underneath uh, a sheet. So Eve asks where her brother Martin is and, and, and says Zaroff killed him. Of course, they look under the sheet and they're like, yep. Uh, Zaroff's men disarm Rainsford and, you know, put these little shackle belt looking thing on him. Um, and they carry Eve off. So it's just really just Zaroff and Bob having a discussion about what hunting the most dangerous game really means. Zaroff hunts man. Dun, dun, dun. So Zaroff says he will undo Bob's bonds once the conversation's over and this hunt begins. He did mention that Martin tried to escape through the swamps of, of Fog Hollow.
1: But I do not think that there were frequent competitors in the book though. Yeah. It's kind of like a he's on that island by himself, like the island of Doctor Murrow. Is it just that, that it just so uh, you know, he didn't plan for people to get trapped there, but they did and so he took advantage
0: of it? Yeah. Well this one he's a little bit more proactive in you know, he wants to hunt, so he makes this stuff happen. He's more of a villain. He is. He's, he's not just kind of, you know, in the same kind of boat, so to speak, as Rainsford. He's not just, like, taking things
1: as they come. He's actually making it happen. So it is, there is a proactivity there. And he also calls the hunt outdoor chess, which is also in the book. But this is—I I like that they kept this one because it's—this th- line does convey that he doesn't see— this is murder at all. I mean, beforehand, when it gets revealed uh, in the book, he says, I refuse to believe that so modern and civilized a young man as you, Rainsford, seem to be Harver's romantic ideas about the value of human life. Upon which he goes, no, that what you're describing is murder. There.
0: Yeah, he's a little. He's very
1: simple. He's very black and white in what he sees the count doing, and the, and he sees it as romantic fantasies about the value of human life. Is very creepy. That
0: is creepy. I like that. Um, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's cool for the book. I don't like it in real life. So, Xerof, uh, uh, of course, like I said, he makes this stuff happen. He sees it as good fortune that two hunters, such as they are, are pitted against each other. Uh, the count gives the people good food, exercise, hunting clothes, a woodsman's knife, and a full day's start. He waits until midnight to give them the full advantage of the shadow or the dark. Um, If his prey eludes him until sunrise, he wins the game. If they refuse, Ivan threatens to make them a knife shish kebab, and no one to date has won. He says, when the next ship arrives, we'll have gorgeous sport together. Say you will hunt men with me. And and they get like a close-up of his face. It's really great. Okay, Bob refuses, and Zaroff says, too bad. I guess I'm going to hunt you then. Uh, Count, the Count gives him a rudimentary knife. Uh, Eve runs downstairs as they are going to release Bob out, out the front door for the hunt. Uh, the prize is Eve Trowbridge. If Bob loses, Zaroff will not kill Eve. He does not kill women. So Zaroff advises Bob to uh, not go to Fog Hollow. And he goes, ah, Fog Hollow, eh? uh, good idea. No, don't go through Fog Hollow. Oh, good. That sounds like a good idea. It's like you're kind of going, whatever you do, Bob, don't go over there. And he's like, I think I'm going to go there. Uh, so they travel for what seems like miles. And they realize why Zaroff is so sure he'll win, because the island is really small. Um, Eve is starting to feel kind of negative and down about their chances. And she feels like she's slowing Bob down. And she says that you might beat him if you were
1: alone. I'm like, oh. That sucks. But however, in the book, I kind of feel like this adds more to the spookiness and the scariness and the thrills. Is that Rainsford, since he's alone and doesn't have Eve in the book, he like repeats to himself and he chants, I must keep my nerve, I must keep my nerve. But there's no reason to do that with Eve. So, like, when you have another person there, it kind of removes some tension that there might be because that there's another person there to console your feelings to
0: uh, Yeah, that that's possible so uh bob uh starts to really get use his brain you know uh some woodcraft so bob gets the idea to use a fallen tree to make a trap that he calls a melee deadfall
1: or rather the melee man catcher in the book oh, okay uh it
0: takes a few hours to build they have some time but midnight is going to come eventually in the movie predator dutch played by arnold schwarzenegger he does something similar he goes uh he goes come on do it come on kill me i'm here okay that's 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 as good as it
1: gets sorry you did note here in your notes from the differences of the book you said the first trap that rainford set for zaroff was the heavy tree to fall but it actually had something to do with his knife this is also, this is incorrect. The melee man catcher was first in the book, but the knife thing was the third trick that doesn't get shown in this movie, which is the trick that he learned in Uganda where he ties a knife to a bush and he rushes off. So basically it would stab people walking in the bush and they wouldn't notice.
0: Yeah, yeah, they didn't use that in the movie, definitely. So, And this
1: is how Ivan gets killed in the book.
0: So Zerof approaches without seeing them. He's got his tartar war bow, Xerof uh, guesses that there is a trap, and he shoots the vine tripwire, and the trap is done. He shoots an arrow right next to Bob, so I think he he, he surmises that they're in that little hollow area. Xerof uh, backs off to maybe lure Bob out, or maybe he's playing with his food uh, like a cat with a mouse. Uh, he goes for his high-powered rifle because he wants to hunt them like you do with a leopard. So Eve panics, and she runs almost into the fog hollow swamp. Uh, Bob suggested building a man trap, like a pit trap. uh, Oh, can I remark
1: on this scene here? Yeah. Like, I really like these shots as they were running where it's constantly flashing back and forth in like 180 degrees to the direction they're going and to their faces, The, the grass ahead. And the face is running, like, kind of like Crash Bandicoot.
0: <laughs> well, there's a part that does that, and it's closer to the, the end where they're going to the rushing river and the waterfall.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, that that comes in a little bit. So, uh, it's getting darker. Zaroff comes through, and he sees a branch moving, uh, and he does not fall for Bob's trap. Uh, Bob is running to the swamp, and they have about 30 minutes uh, before you know, before they can you know say I've won, uh, they have made Zeroff's rif- uh, rifle useless in the fog. Uh, Zeroff blows his horn though, uh, summoning the hunting hounds. Um, Rainsford and Eve run with Zeroff and company in hot pursuit through jungles and swamp. Ivan gets
1: himself speared on a bamboo pole. Yes, Ivan gets speared on accident. So then we get to the famous. Waterfall right before, well I'm saying
0: right before that, they have the log over the jungle ravine scene. There's a big log over uh, over the jungle ravine. There's, there's like no dialogue in this whole part, just action music and suspenseful uh, chasey. So Bob and Eve are trapped up a tree by the hounds. And Bob says, those animals I cornered, now I know how they felt. Which, you know, that's really good And these
1: hounds are very famous in the most dangerous games. So much that it got an alternative title, uh, the Hounds of Zaroff, because they were so important. Wow. I mean, Great Danes are pretty enormous creatures, obviously. They're the biggest, and that's what makes them scary, is just this enormous dog just pelting you.
0: But... not to not to rain on your parade with these older movies but anytime you see horses or dogs it, if they get a performance out of the creature, it's not because they're trained really really well. it's because they're probably putting them through some unnatural stuff um, because the the people for the ethical treatment of animals and other ASP, ASPCA and even other uh, organizations uh, in movie productions as time went on, Uh, they got more and more concerned about animals' welfare. And they would say, they would put things at the end of the movie, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. And that is a pretty famous line. But they do not put that in a lot of these movies because it's highly likely... That some dogs died in this movie and I, I, okay. So
1: we get to a penultimate part of this movie is where Zaroff shoots at Bob and there's a hound in front, fortunately. So they both fall and they're presumed dead. So what is funny is that right when he just killed the dude, assumedly, he just, he just pops a cigar and he checks the time and he goes back home and plays piano. So he's just like, job, job well done.
0: Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a victory thing. Like uh like he's re- l- l- relaxed. He goes and in, back into his uh, house and he's playing the piano. Uh, and he's drinking a glass of wine. He summons Eve because she's the prize, right? That just that's very dehumanizing. He's like love. It's like uh, it's not for her. It's for you. Uh, unbeknownst to the Count,
1: though, Bob is alive and he sneaks in the same way that Zaroff closed the door at the toward the beginning of the film. He does that here. Where do you have the shot of him behind the door? He closes the door. It clicks shut uh, with like a, pfft, and then yeah, that's the, the, when he notices the little bar. Yeah, that's yeah, that happened. That that's kind of a cool parallel. The beginning and the and he says
0: of the uh, he says uh, Zarev says my dear Rainsford, I congratulate you. You have beaten me. And Bob says not yet. Then then Zarev says, oh, but of course I insist. Why you're you're not even wounded. And he says, you hit, hit the, dog. the dog, not me. Not me. I took a chance, and I went over with him. A clever trick, Rainsford. I, chief, I must cheerfully admit defeat. Um, he throws him the key to the boathouse, and he, Bob catches it, and he says, the door is in the trophy room. Uh, you and Miss Trowbridge must, may leave at once. He pulls a pistol out uh, to, to shoot Bob, and Bob grabs it in the struggle. Uh, the gun is thrown out of, the, out of reach, and now it's fisticuff time uh, with Zeroff, Bob, and one of Zeroff's men. Bob breaks the henchman's back. I mean, it's it's like WWE up in here. So Zeroff, uh, he f- he fell near his war bow, and he notches an arrow. He's ready to shoot Rainsford, right? So Bob wrestles Zeroff and stabs the count with the arrow. Eve comes downstairs with Ahmed, who who is, was told to go get her, right? And Ahmed throws a dagger. He's Mr. Dagger guy, okay? He throws a dagger at Bob, but he misses. And then Ahmed runs. Uh, It's like, okay, you wuss. And then Eve and Bob make a run for the boat. Zaroff is staggering to his feet. We go down into the boathouse, and Ahmed makes another try with a dagger. Uh, But Bob is a really good shot. He hits him straight away. The boat is is going out of the boathouse and out out onto open water. And Zaroff is at the window, possibly dying. And he's going to shoot them with his war bow one last time. But he can't do it. He's really losing lots of blood, I think. Uh, and then he says, impossible. And Bob and Eve get away as Zeroth falls off the ledge out of the window to die. We hope by his hounds. Uh, just desserts for the villain. And of course, like a lot of these older movies, they end really quick. There's no, you know, they don't they don't drag these endings out. The villain dies and boom yeah this is the end, and
1: then it just fades off so one last thing about this movie is that well, not about the movie but the book is that the book's descriptions are very vivid, which is something that most people can like about the book is like for instance uh near the beginning, he describes the night um of the sh- when he's in the yacht uh of course it's day in the movie but he says that he can't see not four yards. Ugh, it's like moist black velvet, and it also describes that he can close his eyes and it wouldn't matter because they're just like the darkness is just like his eyelids. I really like that; it's very vivid.
0: Yeah, I, and and I, many times I will agree with you that but that the books are so much more, and even stories are are so much more vivid
1: than the movies. But this was a perfect adaptation that was pretty good. It extended some things and maybe lost a bit of some others but it, it's perfect
0: yeah i i think i think it's very if you want to get a good uh, you know it's about almost like the same length as uh, as a tv show episode now you know like on netflix so like hour-long episodes and stuff this one's just up does its thing gets out uh it after the 30 minute mark it moves with a breakneck pace i mean it's like one thing after the other it does not slow down I mean, there may be a, a a
1: moment or two to breathe, but that it it it's like all right, done breathing. And also, there's a ton more music in this movie, all constant throughout the movie. I mean, I yeah. like that, but it can indicate that the that it's a more adventurous movie because we haven't really seen that in thoughtful movies as much.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think uh, when we watch movies like uh, Dracula or the Mummy or whatever sometimes or even Frankenstein some things are happening that d- that there's no music in the background it just happens yeah, but it
1: is kind of a trade off it it's a trade off how so it's like do you want thoughtful but maybe less engaging maybe or no music and more
0: boring
1: no no or no, do uh, you want
0: I think it's more realistic you know like like you're there you know when you're there in a scene watching something happen. All you have is is what's happening. There's no, there's you know, there's no soundtrack behind our lives.
1: But also, a lot of times, music can tell you how to feel, and sometimes you might not want that. So yeah, that's interesting. Like a audio crutch. So it's like it kind of gives you a space of silence to judge the movie and its events for yourself, which is admirable.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent agree with that. So as a quick note about the genre of this. I I've seen the word horror when talked about this movie but it's kind of more like action adventure to me. It does have a horror villain though. Yes it does and it fits some of the uh you know some of the genres that we've done and will do and that's why I chose it cuz I was like it's 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 good enough to, it's a, a good movie to
1: see. It's a very popular short story as well that it's literally the most like reprinted story ever. In it's book also the most, uh, it's also the
0: most adapted, uh, because of the different,
1: but pe- what people do
0: is they basically take, you know, the, the basic concept of, of the movie and the, or the, and the book and they just spin it out into whatever they want to do it in. So could you really call them adaptations or more inspirations? I would say ins- inspirations, Um, because this is, these, these cliches and the trope of the, the man that hunts other men, uh, for sport, uh, it's very much been used a gajillion times. And we have this movie and book to, or or short story to thank for that. So, um, see, we're seeing the roots of what we see every day, uh, in movies that we think are cool. And then we're like, where'd that, where'd that all start? Uh, and then we, we come back to these, these early films, um, that really started it all and that's kind of uh you know why i like the like doing this movie
1: yeah and there are a lot of good treasures in this time period that people don't realize
0: oh yeah i mean i'm definitely looking forward to to a lot of
1: these like king kong man king kong uh, invisible man Star, uh, uh not star trek frankenstein <laughs> sorry frankenstein and dracula
0: well, there's, there's the, bride, the, bride, the Bride of Frankenstein is coming up in 1935. Um, also, uh, you know, we are going to watch uh, the, an earlier movie in the 30s. Um, it's uh, Fred, Frederick March stars in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it has some, some special effects in there that you're going to be like, how did they do that? Um, I mean, and very influential even with
1: camera. Yeah, you know, the its use of camera. But our next picture is the murders in the room org. It's a pretty classic story. Although when I read it, I I thought it was pretty normal. I mean, it was a story about a monkey that I want I'm to not going to spoil. But yes. are we returning to monkey again? Yes, okay. more monkey. Always monkey. Oh, we are
0: we are obsessed with this with this uh, primate. Uh this is a primate fixation which I don't know if this if this uh podcast is ever going to rid itself of. So, monkey um,
1: say goodbye. B- b- uh did it say goodbye? No, monkey shall say goodbye. Say goodbye mo- mo- monkey. Uh, I'm
0: not monkey. I'm not say <laughs> We're all monkeys. I, uh, uh goodbye. Goodbye. Monkey say goodbye.
1: <laughs> I'm monkey. I'm monkey vengeance.
0: A monkey vengeance.
1: <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm Bat Monkey. We'll see you later for the murders in the room org. See you then. See you then.
0: Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at CinematicFanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcast. Ending transmission now.